Welcome to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Take your assigned seats and listen close as the next hour will have you rethinking the public education system while you listen to Ross and his guests share their expertise and experiences in the field. Class is in session. Here is your host, Ross Danis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Let's Reinvent School, the program that focuses on what is possible, not what's wrong. Today's program is focused on equity, specifically equity as it relates to schools and the education of our youth. Joining me today on the program is James Ford. James is an award-winning educator and consultant on issues of equity in education. He's a principal consultant at Filling the Gap Educational Consultants and the executive director of the Center for Racial Equity in Education, otherwise known as CREED. He was appointed by Governor Cooper in 2018 to serve as a member of the North Carolina State Board of Education, representing the Southwest region, and he was named as North Carolina's Teacher of the Year in 2014. Welcome, James. Proud to be here. Thanks, Ross. Bet. Also joining the conversation is Marta Doran. Marta is the principal of Charlotte's Bilingual Preschool, and prior to assuming the position of principal, Ms. Doran served as lead teacher with a demonstrated history of working in the primary secondary education industry, she's skilled in coaching, lesson planning, educational technology, Spanish, and tutoring. She's a strong educational professional with a Bachelor of Science that's focused on teaching English as a second or foreign language. Welcome, Marta. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. And today we have the privilege of welcoming Joanne Stevenson Jenkins to our discussion. Ms. Jenkins has her Master's of Education in Educational Psychology, a Master's of Divinity in Spiritual Formation. Ms. Jenkins taught at Villa Heights Elementary School in Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. She's an instructor in the Criminal Justice Department at Central Piedmont Community College. She was awarded Practitioner of the Year by the Johnny H. McLeod Addictions Institute at UNCC. And if that's not enough, she serves as the co-chair the Board of Galilee Ministries of East Charlotte. She's a member of the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, Racial Reconciliation Council Advisory Board member, Black Congregations Missioner of North Carolina Diocese, co-chair, and the, and the Reimagining America Project's Education Subcommittee. That is a lot in one sentence. Welcome, Joanne. Welcome. Welcome. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. And finally, we welcome MECED's Chief Operating Officer, Ms. Shelley Bybee, Shelly will serve as our respondent in our third segment when we ask ourselves, what have we learned today? Welcome, Shelly. Thank you so much. So now let's dig in. When it comes to equity versus equality in education, the terms are often used interchangeably. But understanding the distinction between the two is essential for resolving issues faced by disadvantaged students in the classroom. While working towards equity and equality can both be good, equity should be an educator's end goal. The reason lies in the difference between being fair versus being equal. So equality is more commonly associated with social issues, perhaps because most people know what it means in that context. In a nutshell, its definition is as it sounds, the state of being equal. When a group, fo when a group focuses on equality, everyone has the same rights and opportunities and resources. So equality is beneficial, but it doesn't address specific needs. For example, Giving each student a take-home laptop, for example, would not address students who don't have internet in their houses. So even if school is equal, some students may still struggle. Equity, on the other hand, provides people with resources that fit their circumstances. 
a focus on equity takes into consideration varying personal experiences, social identifiers that impact students' educational opportunities, including race, gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, disability, family background, and others. And to address these inequities, education leaders must first understand that diverse students have diverse needs. So all students deserve a quality teacher in every classroom, but unfortunately, inequities exist in students' access to effective educators across the P20 spectrum. As we've heard on the program before, if an elementary school student has a highly effective teacher for three years in a row, they're highly likely to be successful in school and beyond. Likewise, the converse is true as well. If an elementary school student has an ineffective teacher for three years in a row, there's a high probability of failure across their entire school experience. We know that Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools alone, there are over 1,100 teacher vacancies right now. The number of educators, including principals, are leaving at a much higher percentage in high-poverty schools. And those associated with high-need schools have a high rate of turnover. In fact, these under-resourced communities often have trouble keeping educators who can make a difference. 62% of high-poverty schools report that it's challenging to retain high-quality teachers. James, from your perspective as an extraordinary teacher, State Board of Education member, tireless advocate for equity, what needs to happen to ensure that students have the great, with the greatest needs have access to the most qualified teachers? You know, it's a complex question, um, but I think the simplest answer I could give would be to ask the simple questions of where does the power live, right? Um, that is not an inevitability. There is a pattern that is likely a result of some very intentional policy decisions. And so why is it that high poverty schools, schools that are in Charlotte-Mecklenburg are also consequently you know, racially identifiable, have such a hard time recruiting and retaining teachers, have such high turnover? How does, how does teachers get assigned? Who's in the decision-making capacity? And how are these decisions made? Those are pivotal questions about where the power lives to make these sort of decisions, because until you discern what the root cause is, we're going to be spinning our wheels. So I doubt any of us off the back of our hand know who that person or persons uh, are. But that, I think, is where we have to begin our inquiry. Who's making these decisions and how are teachers being placed and how can that be changed in a way that's more responsive to the needs uh, of, of the student population? Interesting. I don't know if it's true, but what I what I hear is that the least experienced teachers often get assigned to the the, uh, the most demanding schools and it's don't true. have the supports. Yeah, yeah. So we and that's not just the Charlotte Mecklenburg um, data point. That's a that's a North Carolina data point. At Creed, uh, we released a report about uh, three years ago where we analyzed that. Right. So early career teachers, year zero to three, um, you know, and and you know, students of color are more likely. Um, to be to get access to novice, what we call novice teachers. Hmm. And so all of these things are kind of layered on top of each other. Um, so consequently, they have the highest turnover rates, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, that's not an inevitability. That's not a natural occurrence. That's a decision or a lack of decision. And it requires some scrutiny and some critical thought about how students, uh, how teachers are assigned and what we can do to incentivize folks uh, to stay in places where we have the greatest need. 
Where do those decisions rest, that power? Is it with the principal or is it central office? HR. It's a district decision. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think it, it, we have to be clear here that if we were talking about a different state, you know, or a different school system, then maybe that response to that question would be different. But we know that the, uh, the you know, the, the HR and the placement of teachers is a decision that rests at the district level. And it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I can't tell you necessarily how that mechanism works, but, uh, you know, you work for the district, <laughs> you know, you don't necessarily work for the school. And so when you apply, uh, you know, you're applying for the district and you are placed where based upon a bunch of factors, they determine that you need to go. Right. And mm -hmm. that um, needs to be looked at uh, during the Gorman era. It was played with a little bit. They tried to incentivize teachers and pay them a little more to go places. Uh, you know, with more or less success. But I, I think that that's a really, really good place to start and begin the conversation. Mm. Thanks, James. A lot to think yeah. about. Marta, you're the principal of a bilingual preschool. How are you recruiting? How are you training? How are you retaining high quality teachers? Who, in your case, they must also be bilingual. Correct. So we are lucky <laughs> to have a very well organized family program. Because at um, Charlotte Bilingual, we believe in supporting parents and the child. If the parents are well taken care of, then the children will thrive in the school. So when all these parents come and participate in the activities or the support that we give them, such as um, occupational ESL or financial education, or just come and volunteer, we start as um, creating relationships with them, and we figure out that some of them have teaching degrees back in their country hmm. or are interested in becoming early childhood educators. Uh, they have not done so either because they do not speak the language or because they don't know how to convert or how to um, have their degrees recognized here in the United States and obtain teaching licenses to practice. So our family program created another branch that is called the Workforce Development, and it's exactly that. We are dedicated to identify members of our Latinx community that are interested in becoming um, early childhood educators, educators in general, or they already are, and we support them by help them understand and navigate the um, adult educational world. <laughs> um, the education system, of course, is very different in our countries, and sometimes they don't even know where to start. So we help them identify those roadblocks, and we accompany them uh, along the way so that they can pass those blocks and actually have their degrees convalidated. They can return to school, enroll in colleges, and take classes, the credits that they need, to then apply for that teaching license. And we go farther than that. Uh, some of them are invited to become part of our apprenticeship program. So they work for us full time. Um, they are being paid with um, funds from uh, programs like Charlotte Works and other generous donations from different people in the community. And they, as they are studying or getting those credits in college, they are also in the classroom right next to experienced teachers and they are learning from those teachers they are being mentored by those teachers as well so when they finish they 
they have not only a certificate from the state that recognizes their apprenticeship, but some of them already have their degrees. And we can either open more classrooms to serve our students or send them on their way to other centers so that they can serve um, Latino students or Spanish speaking students in other centers. This is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> in fact, the most inspired thing I've heard in quite a long time, you're growing teachers, you're growing them and you're, you're helping uh, support the economy and their economic well-being while you're uh, growing a staff for your school. Mm-hmm. Uh, just amazing. And I mean, you graduated from, let's see, the University of Coast, Universidad de Costa Rica. Yes. So uh, actually, I came to the United States with an exchange program to work with Charlotte Mecklenburg schools in a dual language program. And um I myself had to have my uh, degree convalidated and figure out what credits I was missing to actually obtain an elementary teaching license. Um, Because of my degree, I got the teaching license for elementary and the ESL teaching license. And later, I had the opportunity to complete my master's in um, uh, uh, Winthrop University. And that's how I became a principal. but I remember being in the uh, public school system, how hard it was to find teachers. They were exporting us. <laughs> so you <laughs> they grew needed them. to bring all of us from other importing us from yeah, really uh, cool. other countries. Yeah. So there was this recruiting program in North Carolina who will go to our countries, find us and bring us here with an exchange visa. And that became a challenge for um, principals, our schools who offer dual language programs. And not only in Spanish, but also French or German or Chinese and any other languages. They needed to import the teachers. It's more common than we think. I mean, there are other states doing it where like Texas, Nevada, for, for example, or they have to import from other countries and put, up, put them up in housing and take care of them, make sure their credits transfer. Listen, it's hard enough to transfer credits from Georgia to North Carolina. I can't imagine how difficult it is to do from Costa Rica. Yes. Good for you. That's absolutely impressive. Jo- Joanne, I guess I've saved the biggest and most challenging question for you. I don't know why. It's because I know you so well uh, and I think so highly of you. But do you think, do you really think that schools are inherently inequitable? In other words, is inequality just baked into every aspect of schooling? And if so, what can we do to fix that? To answer you honestly and clearly, mm-hmm. I think the what we call education I don't believe it is inherently inequitable. What I do believe and what I do know is that resources are not distributed equally. Hmm. And that is what results in these tremendous gaps and voids in our school. Education is every child. I come from a tradition of every child is tabula rasa, rich already knowledgeable and my work as a, as a teacher, and I had this in my experience from my student teaching on up, every child has the information in there. My job is a coach and a facilitator to guide them. That is the tradition that I was educated in. And when I first went off to uh, teaching, that's the kind of education I received as a child And then, you know, so I took that wonderful naivete all the way into it. And I was assigned to a school in Pittsburgh in the Hill District 
where mm. there was so much dust and grit on the windows. And I had this very middle-class education saying, this is how you position the piano in the classroom so the sun isn't in the children's eyes. And I get to a school where the windows haven't been clean and the sun couldn't come through there if it was a laser. You got it? And mm-hmm. so in a sense, the children were almost like the byproduct of the soot. And I got into trouble with the principal because it was just like, well, don't expect much. This is going to be very challenging. You know, they come here with nothing. And I said, no, they come here with everything and we take it away from them. But if we were to say here in Charlotte or anywhere, here's 100%, here is $1, and we're going to divide it equally to everyone, Mm -hmm. then we would have less of a problem. But that's not how it works. No. It's interesting you say that. It reminds me of the time when, as a school principal, I remember watching a teacher smell a young boy's hair and say, oh, I know where he lives. Mm-hmm. And I time-stamped her firing in my, on, in my head in, in that moment. It was October. I had to wait till April mm-hmm. to not rehire her. But there's no room for somebody like that in a, in a school. So it's, it's a matter of saying, do you, do you believe that all kids can learn to really high levels and if you say, well, what you see is what you get, there should be a trap door that just sucks you out of the room. No, yeah. There's no place for you there. Mm-hmm. Man, I didn't realize that you, you started in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I did. And, and, and I'm going to be honest with the five of you and our audience. I didn't find too much difference when I moved down here. You know, my parent, I, I, I'm a little bit older than you are. Education was considered to be the safe place to go prepare for that. My parents wanted me to return to the sit of to Philadelphia and just go to work at a very upscale. It was a public school, but it was a very upscale school, very, very similar Brenmar. to some of the ones that we have here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that I would be safe and you know, you know, I was just gonna be a spinster and everything would be safe. And I chose not to do that. That I went back and I studied more and I decided to go to a school that was a vocational high school with pretty much the same thing. Tough mm-hmm. kids mm-hmm. had to be really creative to look at the diamond that was in the dust. Right. Loved it. Drove my father crazy. And I'll then bet. the last thing I want to say, and then I came to Charlotte with mm-hmm. this teaching certificate, got a job. And went to another school here, and I thought I was back in Pittsburgh for a wow. minute, minus, wow. the, minus the steel the mill. Soot. Got you. My goodness. You know, in a moment, we're going to take a short break. Uh, hard to stop, put a pause on this conversation. But during the break, you're going to learn more about MechEd, the nonprofit I lead here in Charlotte, North Carolina. To learn more about MechEd, you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or on the web at www.meched.org. Don't go away. Best is yet to come. We'll see you on the other side. So MECED is a college and career readiness uh, institution that is very committed to workforce development, has been for quite some time, with a special emphasis on making sure that the kids who face obstacles in our community have a fair shot at a bright future. Right now we're working with young people from uh, Garinger, from Harding, University High, West Charlotte, and Chambers High School. Before the pandemic, they were all on the bottom fifth of the economic ladder. These days, it's hard for them to even find that ladder. Then we provide job shadows, uh, paid internships. We'll pay for career clothing, transportation, food, 
certification programs. The goal is to make sure that every, every young person in Mecklenburg County has an opportunity to, to live a life where they can thrive, both in school and out of school. And we believe that that doesn't happen just by being in school, that school isn't enough, that to be educated requires much more than school. Experiences matter. My experiences with MedEd, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. I think I, th I do think MedEd is invested in me um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students. And it's like they won't go down without a fight. <laughs> so MedEd means opportunity, family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the Maternity Center. Uh, career Pathways. We work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections and, and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would would do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not. I don't know having someone to talk to and a shoulder to cry on. You know, different family. MECED's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are going to need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. And we want to make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're, you're hitting on academics, you're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like, you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school, with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and Mac Ed, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different. And what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. 
Welcome back, everyone, to Let's Reinvent School, the program that really tries, really tries to focus on what's possible, not just what's wrong with our education system. Today, we're talking about equity in education, and we're joined by three extraordinary, accomplished, and accomplished guests. James Ford, Executive Director of Creed, Marta Duran, Principal of Charlotte Bilingual Preschool, and Joanne Jenkins, Educator, Activist, Civic Leader. Before the break, we spoke quite a bit about the value of having a quality educator in every classroom. So we're going to shift gears a little bit here and talk about how schools sort kids. That's right, sort. And they seem to do a very good job of this. Some get remediated. Some get enriched. Some get to complete mind-numbing worksheets that, that foster cognitive anesthesia. And others put on plays and engage in simulation activities. James, do you think there's a racial bias that informs how elementary school kids are, as we say, sorted? What evidence do you have to support that belief? And would anyone else like to respond once James has a chance to go? James? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, racial bias exists. Um, and schools are site of sorting kids, always have been. And I'll kind of anchor my response in you know, to one of the questions you asked earlier, although it wasn't directed to me, I, I agree that education is not inherently inequitable, but the education system as it exists in the United States is inherently inequitable. And that's because it was designed to reproduce a lot of the social hierarchies that we have within society. Uh, so the same groups that have been socially dominant and privileged, right, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, English speaking, Christian, right, are the groups who the institutional schools were patterned after. Um, and so, you know, as it exists today, there's a preponderance of evidence uh, that schools are sites of sorting. I think to an article from the 80s by Gene Anyon, uh, A-N-Y-O-N, uh, that kind of looks at the quality of education on down to the assignments, depending upon like the, the income markers of the school. And you layer race on top of that, and it's the same way. So you look at uh, who gets identified as being gifted, Right. Uh, who gets enrolled in the most rigorous courses? Uh, you look at. Pros there, James. Who was suspended. You look at who is identified James, as James having special needs, et cetera. It all is in the larger society. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, those are decisions that are made because schools are part of society. They're not separate and apart. And so the right. same biases exist. Right. Yeah, so I mean, uh, to do your point, they were never designed for everybody. No, the, the, and so when people say we have to change the system, I'm like, I don't know. I don't think the system's broke. I think it's doing exactly what it was designed to do, as all systems do, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, it wasn't even designed for girls, for God's sakes. It was just white boys of landowners, and you know, you, you couldn't teach an African American to read. It was against the law in this country up until I don't know, not all that long ago, frankly. That's right. So. That's right. You know, so, you know, third grade, we start to sort. And then who gets algebra in eighth grade, you know, versus pre-algebra? And the world begins to divide because then if you had algebra in eighth, you're going to get geometry in ninth. But if you had pre-algebra in eighth, you're going to get algebra in ninth. And you know what? You're never going to be able to take chemistry because you run out of road. And you also start traveling with different groups of kids because they've been assigned that way. And so, as we know, you know, achievement is based on three basic things, where you live, the aspirations of the family, and the social aspirations of the children your children go to school with. And so if you're traveling with, you know, a group that 
doesn't have much social aspiration going on either at home or in school or from their teacher. You know, uh, it's 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 a very predictable outcome. <sighs> Any specific examples? You know, that you said that was designed uh, the way the system was designed. It's inherently inequitable. Yeah. What do we yeah. need to do, James? What do we need to do to fix that? You know, so one of my research areas, in fact, like my dissertation topic is actually about, you know, uh, second ward mm-hmm. high school. Right. In Charlotte, Charlotte's first black public high school. And at a time when, you know, the rest of the South was beginning to offer education, public education, which was born from the advocacy of, of, of free black people, uh, they were already underfunding the black schools if they were building them at all. And they were offering them a very particular type of education called an industrial education. So you were not being afforded the luxury of uh, liberal arts curriculum. You weren't being introduced to the humanities. You were learning how to be, uh, you know, uh, you know, hewers of, uh, of wood. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. and and laying bricks. You were trying to they were trying to find ways to put you into the cheap labor force in the southern economy. Um, so that's the legacy that exists. Uh, but there have been black, uh, you know, uh, schools and teachers who have subverted that, who have disrupted that and found ways to still offer amazing education despite adverse circumstances. One thing is to go back and retrieve that legacy, right? Uh, to go find out the counter narratives to the dominant discourse, which is that, you know, uh, Black schools were inherently unequal and failing. And, you know, structurally, that may have been true, but there were some amazing examples that need to be retained in a modern environment. And secondly, um, you know, money, you can't drop a bag on people's head and expect that that will equal opportunity. But I guarantee you, whatever remedy we're talking about is associated with some sort of financial uh, investment. And so, uh, you know, finding ways to offer social and emotional supports, finding ways to train workforces to represent uh, to recognize the, the linguistic, the cultural uh, differences of the student populations and responding to that so they can affirm the identities, because my achievement is attached to what I believe I'm, a, I'm capable of. And if I don't see myself or hear or, you know, my sense of identity is not welcomed into this space, you can bet it's going to show up in, in the outcomes. But it has nothing to do with my aptitude. It has everything I, to do. You're with- absolutely right. Nothing to do. And Joanne said that earlier. Too, that you don't, everybody has the same potential. We just have to bring it forth. As they say, I mean, the root, the root of the word educate is adjudicate. The Latin means bring forth. Now, I just said this on Monday at a staff meeting. Here we placed interns all across Mecklenburg County. You know who wants to take our interns? Uh, senior citizen homes. That's senior residential treatment centers, you know. Um, and I said, I don't want our kids. I'm not preparing the next generation of black and brown kids changing bedpans. Uh, let's get them into STEM, for God's sakes. Let's get, you know, we don't prepare them to work at the Coca-Cola bottling factory or Lowe's. We're not their workforce development entity. So um, let's, let's raise those expectations. Marta, how are you involving parents and families in the education of their children beyond what we've already talked about? Yes. So another very important part of the work that we would do with parents is that we are constantly um, inviting them to participate in surveys and focus groups where they gave us their opinion on uh, how certain challenges affect them or what they mean for them and possible solutions. So I think that one of the secrets here is that we design with the families, 
with our community and not for them. Because as Jane says, if you talk to them, if you create a relationship, you identify those culturally, social, economical, and linguistic differences. And you can take them into account when you come up with a solution for a program or a challenge. So absolutely, they are part of the design of the solutions at our school. Hmm. You know, so many of the kids we work with from the Latinx community who are at Garinger High School and various high schools around the, um, the city, you know, their families depend on them for income. And so many of them end up, frankly, taking jobs that they're beneath them because it's still paying money that keeps food on the table in their house. If we could figure out a way to change that, I would like to do that. We are actually, but not recognizing or acknowledging and valuing our linguistic differences. We are not tapping into the potential of those um, young people. Uh, we are not providing them with a culturally, linguistically appropriate curriculum with um, culturally responsive assessments. So they cannot show society what they're capable of doing, or they are not learning all they could because they are being presented with, uh, this is the way to learn, this is how you have to learn it, and this is how you're going to do it. But they have different backgrounds, and they can show you also their greatness if we consider allowing them to show what they know in different ways. So definitely, we are um, sorting these kids and telling them who they could be instead of us just let, letting them be or are creating this environment where they can show us who they tru truly could be. So you're not asking questions on tests like, so if you're on the back nine and shooting a par four, you know, what would it take for you to improve your golf game? Exactly. I got you. <laughs> Joanne. Yes. Uh, time, I, don't, I don't know how long ago it was, but we had an incident where we spoke with a parent from a school that will go unnamed mm -hmm. who had an issue in the main office about a laptop. And um, the question is, do you think that parents are treated differently because of their race and social class? Like, do you have any suggestions how we could change uh, yes. that? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I think we need to name it. And I wanted to go back to a reference of somebody who was around a little bit before those of us on this call. Aristotle said, described about how society is divided by birth and beauty. And when you look at that, and he said that those are the indicating factors, birth and beauty. And if you are born right, and if you're beautiful, everything's coming your way. And so I think ever since day one in this nation, education was targeting those people who were considered to have been born right and were beautiful. So that meant, like what James said, white men of his background, money. And that has not changed an awful lot in these 200 some years. I was participant of a study where where, where we've, and those of us know that you teach two boys at a certain age and it goes over girls' heads, how people are sorted through. Charlotte had, Charlotte is a mill town. So even be, as James was pointing out, Second Ward High School, where my mother went to school, you had the schools that were designed for the kids, for, with the mill kids going up Davidson. And there was like this cap, you know, at 13 
if we can keep until 13, eh, that's, that's good. And we'll see how it goes. With no real track of going any further than that. And then you have birth and beauty, on the other hand, in, nation, in communities where before they even show up, they got a seat up in Chapel Hill. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. guaranteed. It's mm-hmm. guaranteed whether they can read or write. They show up. That's it. So we can't, I, I think in order to reimagine things, first we have to own where we have to start from. And I do believe, based in just this county alone, people are sorted by the neighborhood, by their homes, by public housing, which we don't call public housing. Now we call it scattered site housing, which is, you know, like a rose is a rose is a rose, right? Mm-hmm. By any other name. And then I'm thinking about a work, some work I was consulted in, and I'll say this real fast. We were called to, I, I and a t- teammate, we were called to go up to Lincoln County, I'm going to name it, that had three high schools, one on the east side of the county, one in the center, and one on the west side. West side was rural, mountain, very familiar with people from central well, Mexico because they were used to migrant workers coming through to pick the apples over there. Nobody over there that looked like that went to school. You came in, you picked the apples, you left. The east side was more like a uh, blue collar, okay, school. The middle, Lincoln, in the center, public housing, that's where you saw your highest number of African-American kids and everything else. The schools look very different. Then someone who opens up a company up there, probably, Marty, you know who I'm talking about, a person opens up a company, and Lincoln County has the highest number of people from Costa Rica outside of Costa Rica in the world because one family came in and said they could be hired and you stay there. And with all of the benefits of becoming a good worker, we will pay for you starting in school, in high school so that when you finish, you will be this. And then the school had to kind of understand, the school system had a difficulty understanding that certain times of the years, when all the families wanted to go back home to visit Costa Rica, that they, it wasn't a trip to Myrtle Beach. You got what I'm saying? So they would pick up the kids and leave for a couple of months and it drove the school system crazy. And they said, well, how come they don't know that the kids can't stay out of school for two months? Well, yeah. You know, you don't have the money to go. It, it, it was just not understanding. But the big kicker, the big kicker, what I saw with this in the sorting was when they decided that they needed to open up a high school to start caring for the kids who lived up on the lake. A fourth high school had to be opened up to cater to the children who lived on the lake in the houses with the helicopter pads. Mm-hmm. And everything started going over to that high school. Mm -hmm. And so now these schools that saw themselves as very unique and very different, having existed the longest with their own needs, now they all got clumped together in the same box. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's, just here, right? It's all across the country that we do this. Well, well yeah, and I'm just trying to, I, when yeah. you ask me to come and speak, like I'm mm-hmm. doing with you all, I try to speak from what I've seen, I you know, you. Not, not, not what I've heard about. 
-hmm. And I saw what happened. So this bean sorting is very alive, is Mm -hmm. very alive all across the place. And Mm -hmm. it's wrong. It's wrong. Spoke with an educator about six months ago from Mobile, Alabama. And she actually said this to me. She said, you know, we can't send our boys to college because then they're going to leave. And who's going to work in that Volkswagen plant? I said, oh, my, um, things have changed. So as much as I'd like to continue, I'm going to put a, put a pin in it right now. We're going to take our second and final break. During the break, we're going to learn even more about the good work that MechEd's doing in Charlotte, North Carolina. Go to our webpage, www.meched.org. On that webpage, you'll find The Locator. The Locator is a searchable database that helps parents in Mecklenburg County access out-of-school time and enrichment programs. Don't go away. When we return, Shelly Bybee will join us to help us answer the question, what did we learn today? We'll see you in a couple minutes. So MECED is a college and career readiness uh, institution that is very committed to workforce development, has been for quite some time, with a special emphasis on making sure that the kids who face obstacles in our community have a fair shot at a bright future. Right now we're working with young people from uh, Garinger, from Harding, University High, West Charlotte, and Chambers High School. Before the pandemic, they were all on the bottom fifth of the economic ladder. These days, it's hard for them to even find that ladder. Then we provide job shadows, uh, paid internships. We'll pay for career clothing, transportation, food, certification programs. It's called to make sure that every every young person in Mecklenburg County has an opportunity to, to live a life where they can thrive, both in school and out of school. And we believe that that doesn't happen just by being in school. That school isn't enough. That to be educated requires much more than school. Experiences matter. My experiences with MECED, uh, they put me in an internship at the hospital for two years. I think I, th- I do think MECED is invested in me um, living my dream. They want the best for each and every one of their students. And it's like they won't go down without a fight. <laughs> so MECED means opportunity. Family, friendship. I am a healthcare tech at Atrium Health University in the Maternity Center. Uh, career Pathways, we work with underserved high school students. We put them in internships at 135 different businesses and industries around Mecklenburg County. It's, it's a powerful economic mobility machine. The experience with Career Pathways, it made me more determined. That's how I got my job at Atrium, because I volunteered for four years at the hospital. So it made me get connections, and, and they said, I'll, I'll give you a call. With um, the students that we've had, the preparation that they had through Career Pathways was just exceptional. Honestly, I don't know what I would would, would do without Career Pathways. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, it's not, I don't know. Having someone to talk to and a shoulder to cry on, you know, different family. MechEd's been around since 1991. We're here to serve young people in Mecklenburg County, and we're here uh, to make sure that they have the experiences, the knowledge, the skills that they are going to need to thrive in life. Young people spend only 20% of their time in school. 80% of their life is spent outside of school. We want to make sure that we recognize that education doesn't just equal school. We learn in all different kinds of places and different ways. With after school, you're hitting on academics, 
you're hitting on the things that they might not have during regular school. So like you have visual art, dance, theater, coding. They still get to do with their friends at school with people who are just like them. Some of them don't even know they could dance. They didn't know, some of them don't know that they can draw. Um, so we try to bring those things out of them that they don't even know that they're capable of. But we've really enjoyed the support and appreciated the support from Charlotte Next and MacEd, not just in um, financial assistance, but also just giving us assistance and support along the way to get the programs up and running. Not every student has the opportunity to experience and, and participate in in-school or out-of-school activities. They have so many demands on themselves. And MECED opens that door to those students. Every student is different. And what MECED does a fabulous job of is meeting that student where they are. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back from recess to Let's Reinvent School with Ross Danis. Got your thinking cap on today? We're going to teach you how to reinvent the public education system. Want to raise your hand and join us on the show? Call in to 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Ross Danis. Welcome back, everyone, to Let's Reinvent School, the program that is focused on what's possible. We're with James Ford. Martha Duran, Joanne Jenkins, and we're now joined by Shelly Bybee, MCED's Chief Operating Officer. She's going to help us answer the question, what have we learned today? Welcome, Shelly. Thank you. It's been a very provocative and rich conversation today. Shelly, what's on your mind? What are you listening for? What are you hearing? Yeah, thank you again to all the guests. What a great conversation. Um, Yeah, part of, as always, I take five pages of notes when I'm listening to this, but one thing that kept sticking out to me when we're talking about quality educators. So I'm a statistic in North Carolina after five years of teaching, left the classroom, um, loved my kids, loved the students more than anything, but just couldn't do it anymore. And I remember at the time they were taking away a lot of our incentives. So to become a, you know, um, NC board uh, certified teacher, they took away pay incentives for that. Uh, the bonuses had gone away that we were receiving, and I was up in Iredale County. Um, so when you were talking about the importance of a, a student having three years of quality, high-quality educators, especially in that elementary age, um, and unfortunately, that seems to be very rare these days that we can piece together three years in a row for our students, I want to know what is it, so if I as a parent or um, a community member, what can I ask the school district to, to help move progress towards keeping high quality teachers? What are some of these incentives that have worked in the past or maybe we haven't thought of um, and that we can push for because we know how important that is? And also, along with that, when we look at the issue of black males in the classroom, and what we do to our highly effective black males, we stick them with the greatest behavior issues from the get-go. Um, we don't provide the professional development support that they need. So if, if anybody wants to um, kind of talk through maybe what some of these incentives are and then, um, you know, anything around black males in the classroom, because I know that that is 
such an important piece for our um, young African-American students to see people that look like them in the classroom too. Can I I jump in on that really quickly? Um, Because I too, you know, black male left the classroom after, you know, five years, et cetera. It was not by choice, right? I have two kids at the time. My wife got pregnant with twins. (laughs) Just couldn't do it, right? You know what I mean? Like, it was not me, it's math, right? So, um, you know, I think that to begin, the first thing we ought to do is listen to what teachers say they need um, and undergo a process. There's a teacher working condition survey that's administered by the state uh, uh, every other year, and it's not broken out. Uh, by race, <laughs> which is really interesting because if you're going to have a targeted strategy to figure out how do we get more Latinx teachers, how do we get more black teachers, you might want to listen to what that particular subset is saying are their working conditions and why maybe they're dissatisfied with what they need to be retained. Uh, the other thing is, I think, offering, uh, you know, leadership opportunities and career ladders. As you mentioned, um, they got rid of master's pay. Um, the base teaching, uh, base pay for teachers is not really comparable by our regional uh, um, neighbors. Um, so that I think that that would help a lot as well. But I think what would be really interesting is to begin, we talk about high quality teachers, how do you string those together? There are teachers, and we have the data, we just don't use it uh, uh, creatively, to determine who's good with which kids. Right. So you might have a teacher that's rated highly effective. Right. In general. But then when you start looking at their subgroups, you know, and you find that, yeah, crossed on average. Yeah. But the low income girls, they actually are not growing them or they may have a, a reverse, a negative impact. So you can break down the different subgroups. And so, you know, when I talk to, you know, my principal, I'm not going to lie for my kids. I say, who's good with growing black boys? Mm-hmm. And they can look at the power school data and they can see. And I'd be like, well, I want my son in that class, right? If you can do anything. Imagine doing that at a district level where now teachers are placed with the students based upon the need and based upon the teacher proficiency, right? Now we're being creative and really about specializing the labor and workforce. We just haven't thought outside the box to do that yet. And not nearly as complicated as, as it might sound to somebody. We've got the information. It's just a matter of sorting the data. Man. Justin Perry was at, a, at the board at the commissioner's meeting last night talking about how his son's um, teaching assistant, he adored black man. And he said, you know, he just really admired him. And he announced that he's leaving because he just can't afford to stay. So, you know, there has to be there has to be some fix here uh, for things to change. Marta, your thoughts. I think that with that also comes building capacity. So um, if we have a teacher that is really, really, really good with this particular set of subset of students, then teachers can learn from each other. We love to learn. We teachers, we love to learn. And we learn best when we learn from each other. So um, we can uh, also learn how to... um, you or learn a strategies to be more effective with every single student that walks through our um, classroom. But again, I'm gonna say it again, teachers need to be respected as professionals. As James said, we need to listen to the teachers. They know best, but the way our system is uh, set up is the curriculum know, knows best. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the people who decided um, 
uh, how our kids are going to be grouped, they know best. And uh, you are only um, going to be an effective teacher if you do what they say and um, if you do it how they tell you how to. And all of us know, all of us who have been in the classroom know that sometimes that goes against everything that a particular set of students uh, need. So we need to start learning to, we need to start listening to teachers, respect them as professionals and give them a professional development that will give them a strategies to be able to be effective with every single child that is sitting in that classroom. You know, when you say that, I think of, I think of um, some people and what they might've been like in third grade, like what was Elon Musk like in third grade? Cause he's, he's the first to say that he's on the spectrum in terms of autism. Uh, Kevin Hart, Cat Williams, Robin Williams. You know, these are people who probably had a really hard time sitting still, but needed a teacher who knew how to work with them and how to celebrate their differences and different kinds of minds and bring bring all of that talent forward. I want to shift gears and then come to Joanne for a moment. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about social emotional development. Schools with the smallest achievement gaps between demographics have the highest overall test scores. That means that when the most disadvantaged student scores improve, students from more privileged backgrounds improve as well. When schools are mindful of different backgrounds and provide the right resources, all students are prepared to learn and help each other succeed. Equity can also strengthen student health. In a study involving 4,300 students in Southern California, the children who felt safer, less lonely, and reported less bullying, also had higher diversity levels in their classes. So being equipped to promote diversity and promote and provide for students from all backgrounds makes for an environment where students feel comfortable and have better emotional regulation. Additionally, equitable communities are linked to better health, longer average lifespans, stronger, stronger social atmosphere, economic growth, all because of a focus on equity. So you just wonder why, why can't we, why can't we embrace this? Joanne, bring us out on a positive note. Well, what I want to say is that I think that there is a positive future, but we have to kind of, I would like to say, and I support what James and Marta said, and I'd like to move it back even before the person gets out of university and then continues on. To start being able to identify and teach to the strengths, you know, go in there with build up, learn to your strengths, your assets, and helps teachers or potential teachers become aware of their biases, who they are good with, and who they probably are not going to be very good with, and then support them in where you place them as a licensed clinical person. We have to constantly ask that. Nobody can do everything. And you got a lot of people say, oh, I can teach anybody. I say, you really think so? Okay. So my hope is in that we start grooming and helping the, these potential educators and then continue to support them from before they even hit the classroom. And the second thing is what I like happens over at Bilingual and the other schools is I would love to interview the parents at the very beginning in preschool, first kindergarten, and say, what are the dreams that you have for your children? What are some of the obstacles that you live with? And how can we help you with that? And then support the teachers that know that information, encourage the whole system to surround them 
And so that what, what you're doing is moving people through one of the most wonderful events I ever had real quickly was working with a girl, a family over at Spa, Bishop Spa. And when we were talking about emotional and social development, her mother had not gone past 13 years old in school. And there was such fear on the part of the mother that that secret came out and yet she couldn't help her with her homework. And once that secret came out, that child turned completely around. No wonder she was acting out. No wonder she was frightened. You got it? Because they had a big, they had a big secret. So that's the way I want to do it. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Just Mm -hmm. prepare people before they even go in here and then interview parents and work with the parents from pre to 12. I love it. I love it. James, final words from you. My final words are going to be nothing to add. Uh, You know, as a parent, I love asking parents about what their dreams are. And so I think that's a beautiful way to take us out. You bet. You bet. And everybody has a right to, to live their dream. I want to thank our guests. You know, James Ford, you're amazing. And uh, I so appreciate you being here today. I know you're very busy. Marta Duran, thank you for all the really good work you do. You're an inspiration. Joanne Jenkins, I want to thank you so much. Uh, I, I, I learned so much from you every time I, I speak with you. And uh, you're a joy to be around. Shelly Bybee, my partner in crime, thank you for being with us today. We want to encourage you to share the link to the show across all of your social media platforms. This program, along with other episodes of Let's Reinvent School, can be found on our host page at www.voiceamerica.com slash show slash 4063. You don't have to worry about that. If you wait a couple of days, this, along with other episodes, will be available. I love saying this. Wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, for more information about Creed, Go to www.creed-nc.org for more information about Charlotte Bilingual Preschool. Go to www.bilingualpreschool.org. And for more information about Joanne and the Reimagining America Project, simply type Reimagining America Project into your browser. We hope you found today's program informative, interesting, some ways provocative, You can find this and all other Let's Reinvent Schools anywhere you get your downloads, as I mentioned before, or on Voice of America's host page. Join us next week. That's Thursday, June 2nd, between 1 and 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Voice America's Variety Channel, when we'll explore how fostering creative and critical thinking in young people contributes to their success, both in life and in school. Until then, stay strong, stay safe, stay the course. We've got this. Thank you for listening to Let's Reinvent School. Tune in next week as we give you some more great insight into the state of the public education system. Until next week, class dismissed.